Welcome to Every Moment His, a podcast dedicated to how God's preached word affects every moment of our daily lives. This sermon was preached by Pastor John Rasmussen at Holy Cross Lutheran Church. Would you please pray with me as we prepare to hear God's word? Father in heaven, as I prepare to preach, I remember that uh, this text, this word is not my word, it is your word, uh, the word of God through uh, the hand of the Apostle Paul. And as we meditate and think upon these words, we pray that you would open up every heart and every mind to see Jesus Christ clearly, to rejoice in him, glory in him, enjoy him. Uh, May that be accomplished in all of us by your grace as we hear uh, these words. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, So today in our text, uh, the Apostle Paul is going to continue wrestling with a mystery. It's a mystery of why his own people, Israel, uh, to which he belonged, by and large rejected the gospel, the gospel that was intended for them and actually came from their lineage and their story. But we also think about the the mystery of how this rejection of the gospel by Israel also opened up the door for mercy, for grace to be shown uh, to the non-Jewish Gentiles, that they would be saved as well. And so with that mystery in mind, let's go ahead and open up to our text. If you've got your Romans journal, go ahead and open up. That's page uh, 946 in the Pew Bible. We're going to close out chapter 9. We're going to start at verse 30 and go a little bit into chapter 10 all the way to verse 4. So Paul says, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith? But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame." Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So our text today is presenting us with uh, two seemingly contradicting truths, things that seem like they don't agree with one another, and yet we hold them in tension. It's also called a paradox, right? Uh, We have this paradoxical truth in our text today, and that truth is this, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is at the same time the most exclusive message ever and the most inclusive message ever. Now, what in the world do I mean? Those words 
exclusive and inclusive seem to be on polar opposites, right? And yet, if we look in the text today, if we look at the whole New Testament, we'll see that the gospel is exclusively exclusive and inclusively inclusive. So what Paul is teaching us here first is about the exclusive nature of the gospel. In this text, Paul is showing us that it is a gospel that excludes all other ways of being saved. Do you see that? Hopefully we've picked up on that in Romans thus far, right? Is that Paul spent a good deal of Romans saying, not by the law, by works of the law, nobody's going to get justified, right? But through what? Through faith in Jesus Christ, in Christ alone. The gospel excludes all works. It excludes all striving. It excludes all moral effort to make ourselves right with God. It just says, ain't going to work. Paul says clearly in chapters 10, verses 1 through 4, look at the text with me. He says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Uh, Paul's talking about uh, his own kinsmen, Israel, the, the people that he, he loves, the people of his own heritage. He says in verse 2, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, that they're passionate about God. But he says, not according to knowledge, not according to what's actually true. He says, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God, and remember, going way back in the sermon series, the righteousness of God is that righteousness with which he makes us righteous, right? The righteousness that declares us righteous. Being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, basically their own way of becoming righteous, they did not submit or come under God's righteousness. In other words, like a lot of, you know, two-year-olds do, they say, I do it, right? I'm going to do it. Um, and God in Christ is saying, no, I'm going to do it. And the two-year-old says, no, I do it. And once again, God says in the gospel, sorry, I'm going to do it. Um, and so in verse 4, it says, for Christ is the end or the goal of the law for righteousness, for being made righteous to everybody who believes or everybody who has faith. So do you see it there that, that Paul's saying, look, there's no plan B or C or D here. God's plan A is Christ. Through faith in him alone are we saved. Every other way of salvation, every other savior, every other path is excluded. Now, as far as the law goes, you know, the law can show us what God requires of us, but it cannot make us actually fulfill those commands and requirements. When it comes to being saved, the only thing that the law can do is it can show us that we need to be saved and that we can't be saved by our own efforts. The goal of the law is to lead us to Christ, where we are saved exclusively by his work to the exclusion of our work. Now, it's not just works that's excluded. Um, it's also anything else that we would hold before God and say, this is why you should justify me and allow me into your kingdom. Um, this would be any boasting about your social status or your accomplishments or your ethnicity or your nationality or your citizenship or your abilities or your wisdom or your intelligence. None of these avail before God, even just a little bit. Um, the gospel excludes these as ways of being saved. 
The gospel proclaims a salvation that is exclusive, exclusively Christ alone, exclusively grace alone, exclusively faith alone. And it's this exclusivity where Israel stumbled. I want you to think with me a little bit about, imagine that you are a Pharisee. If you know anything about the Pharisees, they were the guys who said, we're really going to do it. We're really going to keep the law. We're even going to make laws about the law (laughs) and try to keep them. Paul, before he became a Christian, was himself a Pharisee. Um, These were the guys who were going to do it. They were like the marathon runners of keeping the law. And Jesus says, just imagine how like offensive this would have been. Jesus said to the Pharisees, hey guys, guess what? The tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering into the kingdom of God before you. Uh-oh. Can you see how they would want to throw him off a cliff and crucify him? Right? right? Um, this message of God's grace is what they stumbled over. They stumbled over Christ, who was given to them as a cornerstone foundation to build upon. But instead of building upon that cornerstone foundation, they tripped over him and cursed him rather than receive him and rejoice in him. Paul says that his own people, just like he had done, pursued a salvation by works rather than faith. They were zealous for God, but they were not zealous for the promised salvation that God gave freely in Christ. Now, I don't think we have the same problem. Um, I don't think that people are really trying to keep the the laws of Moses the way the Pharisees were. But I think we can trip over Christ in our own way. We might really like that Jesus is a teacher or that he's a worker of miracles or he's the one who welcomes children or that he cares for the least. But when we hear the message that salvation comes through Christ alone, we might practically kind of say, well, well, not really alone, right? Not only by Christ. We might say, well, what about all those other religions out there? Or, or what about the, the friend that I have who's an atheist who's nicer than your average Christian? We often stumble over what's called the scandal of particularity, meaning that God has chosen a very particular, unattractive way of saving us. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you want to read the verses, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 31, Paul says that the wisdom, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but for those who are being saved, it's the very uh, wisdom and power of God. And, and so the, the cross of Jesus Christ, that salvation is through him alone, it's, it's foolish and weak and offensive to the world. And God says, but this is the way that I've chosen to save my beloved people, to let go of your pride and bow down at the cross and say, this is the way that God has chosen to save me. The gospel declares that righteousness before God comes through one particular man. The salvation of the whole world hinges upon the death and the resurrection of one poor Jewish peasant rabbi who lived some 2,000 years ago in a backwater part of the Roman Empire that nobody really cared about. That's the message, friends. And you can either stumble over it or you can build your life on it. But here's the thing. If you embrace the exclusivity of the gospel, then it also opens up for the inclusivity of the gospel, meaning that the gospel 
is for everybody. It welcomes all people. See, it's interesting. If you, if you, if you try to, to, to say, oh, there's other ways to be saved outside of Christ, then, then the gospel actually isn't for everybody. Um, it waters it down and makes the work of Christ not what it really is. But when we embrace the exclusivity of Christ alone, then what we're also proclaiming is the radical inclusivity of the gospel, meaning that it is open to anybody who would receive it, to anybody who would bow the knee and confess that Jesus is Lord. Let's take a look at chapter 9, verse 30. Paul sums this up here. Once again, I think we kind of miss the edginess of what Paul's saying because we're just so used to uh, Christianity being kind of a Gentile ordeal. I mean, most of us here today likely don't have Jewish background um, or converted from Judaism. Uh, But the early church was predominantly Jewish. And so look what Paul says here. He says this, chapter 9, verse 30, what shall we say then? That Gentiles, non-Jewish people, the Greeks, the Romans, etc., that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, meaning they didn't go after being righteous, that they have attained it. They arrived at righteousness. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they didn't pursue it by faith. They didn't receive it as a gift. Once again, they said, like many two-year-olds do, I do it, right, instead of God does it. Paul is telling us that the very same gospel that excluded those who thought they could earn salvation by keeping the law is the same gospel that included those who didn't have the law and weren't even trying to keep it. I mean, we see that a little bit in our gospel reading. Did you notice how Jesus says to some who have the law, I believe he's speaking to the Pharisees, he says, you will be excluded Weeping and gnashing of teeth as you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets come and sit at table at the kingdom of God. And then, did you notice what Jesus says? He says, those who are first will be last, and those who are last will be first. The last is the people nobody cares about or thinks about. They're given the front row seat. So this is pretty much like saying that the people who are training for the marathon, they're eating all the right foods and they're wearing the right shoes and they're running miles and miles every day and just um, making themselves experience pain for the sake of training, that these people, despite all their zeal and training, have failed to reach the finish line. In fact, they're disqualified. But those who were sitting on the couch eating potato chips and watching reality TV shows, these are the people who are declared the winners of the race, not because they did anything impressive or exerted any moral courage or because they're special, but simply because they heard the good news about a God who sees them and knows them and loves them and gave his son for them to the point of death and resurrection. And those people dropped what they were doing and said, I want that. And by and large, that's what many of the Gentiles did as they heard the gospel that Paul preached. Now, you believe that the gospel's for everyone, right? 
but do you believe the gospel is for everyone? Is there anybody in your mind that you think, I bet that person would never be a Christian? Maybe that person's beyond the reach of God's grace. Maybe that person would never repent and bow the knee before Christ. But what Paul's saying here is that the gospel is really for everyone. Even the people that you don't think it's for, even if you would never admit that, um, that there's people you think the gospel isn't for, the gospel is for everyone. The only requirement is for us to simply bow the knee before the cross of Jesus and say, you're Lord and I'm not. As we celebrate our nation today and tomorrow, you know, we often talk about words like freedom and equality as if such things were self-evident. But in the ancient world, those things were not self-evident. The ancient Roman Empire, among the Greeks and the Romans, they didn't believe in equality. They didn't believe in all people created equally or that people should have equal rights. It just wasn't a thing that existed. Um, In fact, if you're thankful for freedom and equality and rights, which I hope you are, you should give Christianity a high five for that because it was the Christian faith that injected these concepts into the world in ways we're not even aware of. Um, Tom Holland has a book called Dominion. He's a historian and a a BBC uh, reporter, but um, wonderful book, and he talks about how this idea of the gospels for everybody, it includes everyone, anybody who bowed the knee and confessed Jesus as Lord, that that actually changed and transformed the course of the world, uh, even in ways we're not aware of. Here's what I mean. I'll give you an example of how people didn't believe in equality and freedom in the ancient world. Uh, This from uh, the Jewish culture. There was a common prayer prayed by many Jewish men around the time of the New Testament. Um, It's not a prayer from the Bible. Um, It's something that was taught by a specific rabbi in the second century AD. But I think that the, the prayer may have even existed before that. And here's how the prayer goes. God... I thank you that I was not born a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. Wow, quite a prayer, huh? Um, Now, in the Roman Empire, that would would have excluded a lot of people. Uh, This prayer may have been prayed by those who rejected the gospel of grace, you know, the self-righteous Pharisee. Maybe even this was a prayer that Paul himself prayed before he was converted and became a Christian. Um, It's a a prayer meant for somebody who has a very high place of privilege in society, in Jewish society. It would be a free Jewish man who had the leisure to study the law and the laws about the laws and strive to keep it day and night. Now, if you were a Gentile, a woman, or a slave, you didn't have such privilege. But what's interesting is we read the New Testament and as we read early church history, who are the people that responded most positively to the gospel when it was preached? Well, Gentiles, slaves, and women. Sometimes all three at once. 
You see, this gospel message really was for everyone, and it was a radical idea that, that changed the world. And, and the Greeks and the Romans looked at it and said, that's weird. But nevertheless, it's what the gospel declared. It declared that before God, there is no longer Jew or Greek, male or female, slave or free, but all are now one in Christ. That when it comes to being justified, being male or female, Jew or Greek, slave or free, none of that gets you any credit before God. The gospel elevated people who were lower in social status to the status of sons and daughters of God. Gentiles were no longer outsiders. In fact, it really took the, the early church a while to, to learn this, is that many of the, of, of the Jewish people would call the Gentiles dogs. And this is before we like to like cuddle with dogs and have them sleep in the same bed as us. No, friends, back in the first century, dogs were scavengers. They probably had worms. And you see what, that's a, that's a slur, that's a derogatory slur to say, Gentiles, dogs, untouchable. But in the church, you have Jewish people and Gentile people, formerly called dogs, <laughs> now being called brother or sister in Christ. And, 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 a, and a Jewish person like Paul, who, who was under the law his whole life, could not claim any superiority. He could not claim any, God has more love for me because of my status. No. Women were no longer second-class citizens, but rather they were welcome to be disciples of Jesus. In fact, um, one of the earliest uh, complaints against Christianity, second or third century, uh, in, a, in a debate with another Christian um, there was this uh, pagan philosopher who made fun of Christians because he said the first people to see the risen Christ were women, and we shouldn't trust the testimony of women. But the church just told it the way it happened, right? The church recognized that, hey, the women, they were the first ones who got it. The disciples were a little dense. And yet, the women were the ones who saw the risen Christ first and had the privilege of carrying that message to the apostles and saying, hey, the Lord's risen. Slaves were included as members of God's family and joint heirs with Christ, those who have an inheritance in him. This message that the gospel's for everyone, regardless of their status in society, their ethnicity, their gender, it really did change the world, slowly but surely, and many of the freedoms that we now enjoy or even take for granted come from the implications of this gospel. In fact, even those who rage against Christianity sometimes forget that the values that they have, like equality and freedom and human rights, those come from Christianity. They don't come from secularism, friends. It's the air that we breathe because of the Christian faith passing it on to us. But while we may know that the gospel is for everyone, what I want to know is this, is does the world know that the gospel's for everyone? If you were to go out today and just go knock on some doors or do whatever people are not doing or doing outside of worship, if you were to talk to people who are not part of, of God's church um, and you ask them, what is the church known for? What do you think they might say? What's the church known for? I had a lady uh, at, at early service who said, those are the people who always want your money. Um, she, she was a pastor's wife, and so she had heard that, 
I think, a lot, that uh, sometimes people think, oh man, church just, just wants your money. Um, you know, you might get some positive answers from people uh, that the church, man, those are the people who really care, who really show up when there's disaster. For example, I think of natural disasters that have happened and churches will send teams of people to help and listen and support. Um, I think that if the church decided to take a, a week vacation from doing mercy work, like caring for the homeless, caring for the sick, caring for the needy, caring for those uh, who are in the foster care system, all that kind of stuff, if we just say, hey, we're gonna take a, we're gonna take a week off, I think that like, our nation would just like stop. And I think the government would like say, can you please come back? We really need your help because there's so much good work that the church does. And sometimes people notice. But on the other hand, I kind of wonder if people might say, oh man, the church, those are those self-righteous hypocrites. Those are the morality police. We don't like those guys. Now, on the one hand, uh, they might be kind of right about that. I was cringe sometimes when I hear about not-so-gracious experiences with Christians. had some friends in high school who um, I kind of knew them a little bit, but enough to be on social media. Uh, and years after we had graduated high school, uh, they recounted on a social media post that they had gone to, um, well, it caught my attention because it, the, the first line was, church people are the worst. And I was studying to be a pastor, so I said, hmm, tell me more about that. And this friend of mine from high school who uh, had been out drinking very late on a Saturday night and decided to go nurse the hangover at Perkins um, said, yeah, we got to Perkins and the church people are super rude. Um, it's like, uh-oh. <laughs> church people are being rude and not tipping. Um, which doesn't represent the gospel well. But on the other hand, you know, sometimes I think that the church, the people look at the church and they say, man, those people are just self-righteous because we're actually telling the truth about what's darkness and what's light. And sometimes the people are living in darkness and they're rejecting God's law and we say, this is what's right and what's true. Even if we're doing it grace, graciously and winsomely, people will say, that bothers my conscience. We could keep talking about how people perceive the church. I suppose there's plenty of things the church is known for. Some are good, some are bad, some are benign. But as I reflect on this gospel of God's grace about how the gospel's really for everyone, that it included Gentiles, the Jews said were not welcome, that it included those who were lower in society and lifted them up. As we think about that, I really hope that the church would be known for wanting and welcoming the people that nobody else wants or welcomes. That doesn't mean we're going to welcome every behavior, every attitude, every belief, but we're going to say, hey, the only, the only precondition for becoming part of the church is to, to bow the knee to Jesus Christ and confess that he's Lord and to say we're on the same page with him. Wouldn't that be great? A great slogan for the church. We'll take the people nobody wants. There's a lot of people these days who are bored with the church or who think the church and its gospel are irrelevant, but often that's because they're too busy building their own empires of success and riches and pleasure and entertainment in a culture of consumerism and individualism, and in their eyes, the church just isn't cool enough. 
Like, okay, fine. We're never going to be cool enough. We should just embrace that. But here's the other thing, is that in a culture that worships idols, and that I, those idols might be money or power or, or sexual revolution, you know, um, all of those idols, when idols are worshipped, you know what's always left behind? Hurt and broken people. Whenever our society chooses to break God's law and chooses to worship idols and to reject the living God and to say, I'm going to do what I want, there's always people who are left behind wounded. There's always people who are discarded. There's always people who don't fit. There's always people who aren't wanted, who aren't beautiful enough, who aren't convenient enough, who don't fit. And as I look at the New Testament, what I see is that Christ chooses to build his church on the people that nobody wanted. Paul says it himself in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 31. He says, he says to the Corinthians who are so obsessed with their own status and their own well-being and their own, it's all about me. Paul said to them, hey guys, consider who you were when you were called. Not many of you were very smart. Not many of you were very pretty. Not many of you had high standing in the world. But God chose those who are rejected by the world. God chose those who have no standing so that he might put to shame the things that people boast in. And so as we look to the future of what the church is in the days to come, yeah, we're not going to be the coolest. We'll just own that. But we will still be here to be the people who take those left behind by our culture, the people that nobody wants. We will take the people that the world doesn't want, and we will tell them that even though the world says they're not beautiful enough or convenient enough or useful enough, we will take joy in telling them who they really are in Christ. Righteous. Amen. Amen. 